welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, Movie Shark Deblore. You can find me online doing movie reviews in print with movie reviews and interviews, um, moderating. I just had the pleasure this weekend to moderate an outstanding Q&A for the Academy and for the Weinstein Company with Carol Oscar nominees Phyllis Nash, Sandy Powell, and Ed Lockman. Absolutely amazing and an incredible time. And for those of you that are listening, Film Independent members, remember, Phyllis and Ed are also up for Spirit uh, Independent Spirit Awards, and voting for that opens this week. Uh, so bear that in mind uh, when you're marking ballots. And speaking of ballots, uh, the hot controversy continues with the Oscars. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But first, let me tell you who we've got lined up today. Uh, we went to hell last week. We're going to go back to hell again, but a different kind of hell. Um, in the last half hour, we're going to have writer, director, and editor Nathan Williams join us live. His film, If There's a Hell Below, just had its world premiere last night at Slam Dance. So we're going to get to talk to Nathan about that. It is a fascinating psychological thriller filled with ambiguity that lets your mind, just takes your mind on a journey as you watch this powerful story with little dialogue uh, unfold. And we're going back to visit some altered minds, too. Last week, Jamie Ray Newman talked to us about the film and her character of Julie. Today, Joseph Lyle Taylor is joining us at 1115 uh, to talk about the film and his character, uh, Leonard. Uh, And Joseph, I've had the pleasure of talking to before. Um, He has turned in some incredible performances in big films, little films alike. I talked to him uh, a couple years ago at L.A. Film Festival for Dead Man's Burden uh, by Jared Moshe. Wonderful film, revisits the American West period piece. Uh, Joseph has also been in Justified. Uh, along with things like Seven Psychopaths and The Dark Knight. So we're going to have uh, Dark Knight Rises. So Joseph will be here to talk about Altered Minds. And at the half hour mark, we've got writer-director Michael Wexler, the man behind Altered Minds. And we're going to find out how he got to actually use the, the, Julius Ir- Irving's former house uh, for shooting the film, among other things, and how he got Judd Hirsch. Uh, involved. So I'm looking, really looking forward to talking to all of them today, especially given the tone of both of the films. Both are psychological thrillers. Both have a noir sensibility to them, but are both so distinctly different. So it's going to be very interesting to hear the approach that that Michael had with Altered Minds and that Nathan took with If There's a Hell Below. So stay tuned for that. But as I said, you know, the Oscar controversy, it, it is ongoing. It is continuing. And uh, Cheryl Boone Isaacs uh, of the Academy, Board of Governors, they are, have issued some new rules and mandates that they're implementing uh, in terms trying to diversify the Academy membership. And one of the, one of the big, big, big points uh, that is generating the most uh, comment from what I can see and what I'm hearing is the fact that now if you have not been active and they really need to specify what they mean by active if you have not been active in the film industry for 10 years you no longer get to vote this presumably uh this presumably will now knock out all of the elder statesmen who have since retired but on whose very shoulders the this generation of filmmakers stands on and quite honestly uh and again this is my opinion is that the, the elder statesmen are being stomped on if they are no longer going to be allowed to vote a lot of people say oh they don't see the films they don't do this i know so many of the legends big and small that are still alive with us in the Academy, and they take their screeners very seriously. They take the voting very seriously. And in a day and age where we are now going back and embracing and reinvigorating the use of film, Rob Richardson and Quentin Tarantino, 
bringing back Ultra Panavision and 70 millimeter. Um, Ed Lockman shooting Carol in 16 millimeter. A lot of the younger generation of filmmakers, many of them are unfamiliar with the texture, the emotional storytelling, and the layering of the, di of the older formats that are now being reinvigorated, reintroduced. Um, we may end up with the very same situation on many levels where we're not looking at merit anymore. Um, but the, the travesty and the tragedy of it is that these, these founding fathers, the second generation of founding fathers of Hollywood and the Academy are being put out to pasture by their very own. And it's a very sad, sad commentary. I would propose to Ampass that they would reconsider their definition of active and change it to if you haven't voted in 10 years, it shows your disinterest. In that case, then retire them from voting, uh, but let them retain their emeritus status with the Academy. But to deny them, uh, people, to the right to even vote, I think when they are active and they are participating in the process, maybe no longer making films, but participating in the process, um, I think that will open up an entirely new can of worms that some savvy attorney out there is going to jump on. And uh, so this is not the end of uh, this Oscar controversy and this quest for diversity with a more or less a fo uh, forced affirmative action revisited. Uh, so we'll be watching that uh, to see what happens. It won't affect this year's Oscars and the Oscar voting. All Any changes that are being implemented in this expanded diversity uh, that they are so desperate to attain will begin uh, next year, I believe. So that's enough on that for today. Um, other than to say I can't wait to see what Chris Rock and his team of writers, apparently they've gone back in and, and are rewriting and restructuring uh, the opening monologue. Pro, uh, undoubtedly addressing this whole controversy uh, that is going on about the lack of minorities in the act uh, nominees in the acting categories for Oscar this year. Again, merit, merit, merit. This, the Oscars are about merit, who is the best. And not just the best of, in your particular film, but the best in comparison to other people in the similar category and situation. And that is something that people are losing sight of. It's not about what color you are. It's not about what race you are. It's not about what ethnicity you are. It's about merit. Who and what is actually the best. And I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm sorry, Will Smith. You were really, really good in concussion. And it is one of your best performances. But it is nowhere near a best in comparison to the nominee, to the gentlemen that were nominated this year. So... Let's before uh, Joseph uh, Taylor gives us a call today. Let's let's take a look at a film and costumes that were overlooked uh, with Oscar nominations, and that is the costuming of the Hateful Eight. Uh, Courtney Hoffman is a fabulous young up and coming costume designer. She's done a few things. Uh, she's very proud to tell me she is from Culver City. Um, but what she has done with the costuming for The Hateful Eight is so beautiful and so intuitively designed for the period, but also embracing the cinematography and the use of those Ultra Panavision lenses. One of the things that stands out immediately on watching the film is when he does appear in the film is Channing Tatum. And his outfit. Many of you older Hollywood, or if you're familiar, uh, watch a lot of the old 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s westerns in particular, you'll notice the pants on many of the stuntmen, many of the cowboys, many of the wranglers. And they were all made uh, by the company Dickies, a particular fabric with a little bit of stretch in it, but and a little bit of grain that works really well when riding saddles and, you know, rough and scruff and dust and dirt. And you used to be able to buy this at Nudie's uh, on Lancashire and North Hollywood. Nudie's went out of business a few years ago. But in designing the look for Channing Tatum, 
Courtney reverted to that look, to that Dickie look. And while they're not the authentic Dickies that were made in the day, these were made the, the exact same style, the same fabric. And because she knows Channing Tatum's body so well, having dressed him or, shall we say, less than dressed him in Magic Mike, she knows how to make tailor clothes to fit for him. And as every lady out there will notice, the front and back lingering shots of Quentin complement Courtney's work. Well, I don't know if you know this, but I was the assistant on Magic Mike. But I know. So, so I knew what I was working with. Yes, you knew where the- but I, knew, I, I do actually think when I see that, I'm glad I didn't overdo it. Like, they're yeah. not so tight that, but Quentin did do that shot with those, you know. He's got the two, oh, I know. two lingering butt shots. Lingering butt shots with his fancy blink. He's the only one yeah. that has that kind of really flashy. Yeah. So it's literally like draw attention to the front, draw attention to the back. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> but there's a lot more thought that also went in besides how good the pants look on Channing Tatum. There's a lot more that went into the design of his costume. And Courtney elaborated. But that's very perceptive of you because our biggest reference for his costume was the tall T, which is, you know, mm-hmm. right there. So that is very, that's, and, it, and that's why he kind of actually does have a silhouette that sets him apart from yeah. everybody. And I ended up saying to Quentin, like, we can't just go the tall T because it's, to me, it's too Americana. Mm-hmm. And they've been spending all this time in Mexico, this gang. So I did the Mexican version of the yeah. tall T. Yeah, and for those of you that uh, I know, TCM, my TCM fans and listeners out there will know the film The Tall T, 1957 film starring Randolph Scott and Maureen Sullivan. It was directed by uh, Bettisher based on an Elmore Leonard story. Um, An amazing film. This was also a film that Randolph Scott was an associate producer on, and Charles Lawton Jr. did the cinematography. So anybody that ever tries to say that that older films are not of value. A young costumer went directly back to the two older films to get the look and design of this particular costume. We'll get to some more of Courtney in a bit, but right now we have the wonderful Joseph Lyle Taylor on the line. Hi, Joe. Oh, hello. How are you? Welcome to Behind the Lens. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, I am so thrilled. You know, as I was telling the the listeners at the top of the hour, um, I mean, you've been around forever, and we actually did get to talk a couple years ago at L.A. Film Festival, Dead Man's Burden. Oh, is that right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Dead Man's Burden, that was a fun movie. That was an amazing movie, and your character of E.J. Lane. Oh, E.J. Lane, that's correct. Was so much fun. So he was, yeah. And the handlebars alone, you know, <laughs> that I grew out for it. <laughs> no, I mean, that. I was so happy to see that. Um, because so, And so glad to see that some of the younger directors are embracing, you know, the Old West when, when they are creating these wonderful palettes. And, uh, and your perform and the characters, especially the depth that you bring to your, to your characters and your performances, be it in Justified, being in something like Dead Man's Burden, or even, you know, smaller parts in, in like, Seven Psychopaths. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. That's uh, very kind of you to say. I mean, you... Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it's an interesting, uh, it's interesting, uh, you know, to play a part like a guy in, in Seven Psychopaths, you know, because you don't have a whole lot to go on. And um, <clears throat> you really just fill it out, and... Uh, and then when you watch it yourself, you know, cause when I watch my own stuff, it, it's difficult for, I, I think, a lot of actors to sit through it, you know, because it's like playing music. You don't, you really only hear the bad notes, you know what I mean? <laughs> but if you could take it deep, you know, if you just take the time to get it deep, then it's, uh, you know, it's uh, a much better experience, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, and you definitely take it very deep here in Altered Minds, with the character of Leonard, you had yes. me, you had me going, and I mean, this speaks so highly of Michael and what he crafted and what he wrote. Leonard, you play him so ambiguously that at one moment you think he's the heavy, the next moment it's ah maybe he's not. Then you think, okay, is he a nut job? 
um, you really, really play with the audience's mind with your performance. Well, thank you. It was very interesting. Um, someone else was going to do Leonard, and uh, so I came in at the last moment. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened, but pardon me, I came in at the last moment. So um, I think I had read the script when I showed up. Um, to We had a couple of days rehearsal, like three days of rehearsal. And uh, so I just I really made the choice, you know, uh, to to let whatever happened to just happen, mm-hmm. you know, not to censor anything or, you know, because I didn't have a whole lot of time to really look into, look into the character that much, you know, but it, but it was all in the writing. And, uh, and so it really became a very interesting exercise and to work with an actor like Judd Hirsch, who <laughs> is so amazing to work with, really, I mean, his 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 performance is phenomenal in this. Um, so it was it was yeah it was a really great experience. You know, when you first got this script, when it came to you, do you remember what your first impression was of of the story as a whole? Because this story is not something. It's very it's very nuanced. It's there's a lot of subtlety to it that it falls upon performance. And ultimately, in Michael's editing, you know, the, the editing choices as to how, yes. how this noir sensibility is going to unfold. Do you recall your first impressions when you got this script? Because it could have been played so many different ways. Well, yeah, I, I'm trying to think. I, I can't really remember, but I do remember, um, I don't know if it was my first impression of it, but the, the most vivid impression, I, I liked the idea that this character, Judd Hirsch's character, had mani- manipulated his adopted kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it sort of reminded me of, uh, oh, what's that great movie? Um, they did a remake of it. Uh, Lee F. Shriver did it, but Andy Griffith did it in the, the uh, Manchurian Candidate. Yes. It kind of reminded me of Manchurian Candidate. And uh, so, yeah, I, re- I was like, oh, this is very interesting. And it was, you know, the script was a bit long and heavy. And uh, Michael shot it. And uh, uh, Adrian Correa was uh, our DP, who was really fantastic. Mm-hmm. And uh, then in the editing room, I think they really trimmed it down and it's really turned into a nice, tight movie. You know, I think it's, what is it, the runtime, about 90 minutes, it's, maybe a little bit it, more? Yeah, I think it's about 94, 97, maybe. Yeah, not, yeah, so it's real nice and tight, and it, it, I was really, um, I was real impressed with, with what they had done with it, what mm-hmm. Michael and, and the, uh, I think, uh, Tom, the editor, had uh, done with it. And the music is great. It's re- really turned into a, a very nice film. Yeah, I mean, and you mentioned Judd, and uh, Jamie was on the show last week, and for her, that I was, love her. That was one of love the high her. points. Um, and you didn't treat her like an adopted sister. You treated her like a real sister when with the two of you in character. I just want you to know that. <laughs> there, there are so many siblings out there that you know they they get, and I've seen this in so many films where the adopted children are never treated the same as the natural born child, and that's something that. You really conveyed beautifully here, especially with with Jamie's performance. Ryan O'Nan, Ryan, of course, was you know more a loner in and of him in and of himself as Tommy, but you and Jamie had a beautiful, beautiful on screen chemistry. Oh yeah, well, I, we're, I think I'm really fond of her. Uh, she's she's really one of the sweetest people and talented, and and uh, her husband Guy is. Really fantastic. And they just a, the whole cast actually was really great. You know, we had a really good time. And this was a and very, we had, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and this is a very small cast, and it's very self-contained within essentially, you know, one one site. There's not mm-hmm. there's not locations here. You're not driving here, there, and everywhere. No big set pieces. This is one location and just an intimate family grouping. Do you know whose house that was we shot in? Did uh, they tell you? Oh, I know whose house. I'm from Philly. I know whose house oh, yeah, that. Yeah. I know whose house that was. <laughs> Julius Irving's. 
Yeah, it was pretty amazing to, uh, to you know, uh, Dr. J, yeah, Dr. J's old house. And it was a beautiful place. You know, <laughs> we had a lot of space to work in, and uh, it was really nice to have uh, have every pretty much everything located right there. And then I think um, Ryan and uh, Michael had to go pick up some a couple other locations, but the, the majority of it is there at ninety-five percent. So now I have to ask you the obvious question: Then, are you a basketball fan? No, I'm not. But I did. I did watch when I was younger, mm-hmm. and uh, I Michael uh, Michael Jordan and Dr. J and Magic and Larry Bird. I, I liked a lot, you know. But I have uh, I have since. Uh, uh, given up on the sport of basketball, <laughs> <laughs> and, and have taken up golf. <laughs> uh oh, uh oh. Okay, you're dating yourself now. Yeah, that's right. That's that's what happens. Now, how what how was Michael as as a director? His process with working with the actors on set, and I ask you this also for comparison because you also worked with Sidney Lumet. Um, I did work with Sydney, yeah. As did your editor, and as did your first AD. That is that's correct. Michael Metter and uh, and Tom, uh, mm-hmm. we all three of us worked on One Hundred Center Street. Uh, Michael was great. He pretty much, uh, you know, he uh, he had his idea of what he wanted to do, and then he let us, you know, flesh things out. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a it was a good. Uh, symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. um, and I also Michael's also an editor you know so he really comes at it from the point of view of you know how he's going to cut you know so it's it's you don't shoot a whole lot of extra stuff with him mm-hmm. you know it's pretty tight do you like that what, as an actor when you say don't, that one more time do you like that as an actor when you have a director who you know who does know what he wants so he keeps it tight in the shooting and doesn't rely on cleaning up um, cleaning things up in the editing bay oh yeah that's i mean that's key um you know when we worked with sydney we hardly and, and you know sydney directed probably i guess he probably directed half of the episodes that we did uh, the two years we did 100 center street mm-hmm. and uh we hardly worked over an eight-hour day when he was directing, I mean, he came in, he knew exactly what he wanted to do, and we'd block it out and shoot it. And uh, it was, um, and Sidney was real careful with the actors. You know, he let the actors, you know, he didn't call actors to set early. Mm-hmm. You know, he just, he would, he would, he, he was, because he was an actor himself, so he, he sort of understood the process of, you know, because you really have to get focused. And when you're, when you're in there, people are still setting up lights. It just sort of drains your focus a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, now uh, it's a little bit crazy, but it's true. Now, Altered Minds that was shot. Uh, Michael shot that digitally, correct? He did. So now, how does that help you or hinder you? I know I've talked to Sam Elliott about this before um, because he didn't think he would ever get used to the process of digital lensing. But he said it's great because you you still have that energy going. You can keep going. You don't have to wait for setups. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. I I worked with Sam Elliott on Justified. I came in and, and shadowed uh, Adam Arkin directing an episode, and so I got to hang out with uh, Sam Elliott, which was uh, he was really great. What a great guy he is. He is, and the, what a fantastic actor. Oh my God, he is the salt of the earth. Um, he really is great. And he's so generous to everybody, you know, who comes in, who's younger than him, to new people, you know, if they want help, if they want advice, if they want to watch. I mean, he it's fabulous. He is he's great. fabulous. But I agree with him on digital. Um, you know, the great thing about digital is that, you know, you can do a take and say you have, uh, you know, you just drop a line or you or you want to just start the scene immediately again you could just keep going mm-hmm. you know because you're not wasting film mm-hmm. and um yeah i like it i, I like it a lot so uh, i mean but film also is interesting too because we shot uh dead man's burden on film mm-hmm. and so we rehearsed the scenes a, a lot before we started them so we had them just you know everything was you know everything was was uh was right 
So that was that's cool too. But the digital age is very interesting for actors, um, you know, because you can just keep rolling. Mm-hmm. Well, did you have? I mean, the scene where Leonard just totally flips out in the last third of the film as we're nearing the ultimate climax. How challenging? How difficult is that for you? What do you draw on? to, you know, get that level of rage, get that level of energy going and sustain yeah, it? Interesting question. I, I don't really know that I have an answer. You know, I try to get off in a corner and get quiet, you know, and not be bothered by anything and, and just allow, you know, because at that point we've done a lot of work. You know, mm-hmm. we've shot most of the movie and, and everybody's pretty comfortable in their characters and and, you know, I've also done a lot of theater, mm-hmm. you know, uh, here in New York. And uh, so I just, I like to get quiet. And, you know, I've done my homework. I know where I'm coming from. I know what I need to do. And then I just let the let the moment take me, you know. Mm-hmm. Get yourself into a position where you're available for the truth of, uh, you know, the truth of the moment. And, and, go, and go with it. Don't censor yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, how much... You know, because I had to, like, you know, in the end where I'm trying to kill uh <laughs> kill judd <laughs> you know you just have to go for that i mean you can't you can't come at it weak you know it's like you go for it and that's it you know okay, no... okay now were you afraid of actually hurting him while you were in the moment <laughs> no 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 yeah, i stayed in control you know but i have worked with other actors who you know you're like all right dude you know <laughs> We're acting here. Don't hit me. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes you know, that bruise is there for a few weeks after you get hit. I got a bruise right now. I'm shooting an episode of Blue Bloods, and I'm playing a, a pretty interesting character. And so we got into a little tussle, and uh, yeah, so I got a couple bruises. Uh oh. But it'll be all right. Are they anywhere where the makeup artist now has to cover them up? No, they're just on my arms, so it'll be all right. Oh, you know? long, long <laughs> sleeves, you know, you're fine. You exactly. Joe, what do you look for, you know, when, when you're looking for parts, be it for the stage, television, or film, what is the, is it a script, is it the director, what is it that entices you? Well, you know, a lot of times I have to audition for things, you know, so I'll, I'll get a script, and if it's, if it's, moves me in some way, then I will go in for it, you mm-hmm. know, and then sometimes I get offers, like this was an offer for Michael's piece, mm-hmm. and uh, and again, I look for, for emotion in the script, you know, I look for um, depth of character, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or if it's funny, if it's funny, you know, so... I, I guess I, yeah, I guess I look for honesty, you know, and if it if it comes off the page honest to me, then, then I'm interested. Well, I'm glad this one jumped off the page at you because your performance is absolutely fabulous, and it is—it's an incredible film. It just—it well, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm—I'm real proud of it. Well, and on that happy note, I'm going to let you go because I have your director Michael on the line to come in and talk about the film. Uh, The young Rob Reiner. (laughs) The young Rob Reiner. That's right. Well, Joe, thank you so much. I hope you'll you'll come back on the show again in the future. Thank you, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Oh, an absolute joy. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. And oh, we're good to go. And is this the fabulous as as your star, Joe Lyle Taylor, just called you the young Rob Reiner? Is this the fabulous Michael Wexler? I'm sorry, I just jumped on. All I heard was Rob Reiner and then Mike Wexler. <laughs> yeah, I just had Joe on the line, and, uh, and I told him, I said, well, okay, we're going to end with you because I have the fabulous Michael Wexler on the other line. He goes, oh, the young Rob Reiner. That's so funny. I, I, <clears throat> I, I have actually had people say I sound like Rob Reiner. I'd rather, I, you know, which is, I think is a compliment. I, I, I actually loved... Um, uh, the, the movie he did with uh, River Phoenix and Stand. I think it was Ethan Hawke in it. Stand by me. Stand by me. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so um, you know, God, I, I be, should be so lucky to have even a fraction of his career. Well, I'm still very partial to the American president. I have not seen that. Oh, 
it, it with Michael Douglas and Annette right. Bening, it right, is right. it is so it's fabulous. It's it it's so it's pure enjoyment. Uh, from beginning to end. It's nothing earth shattering. Right. Um there's a lot of human emotion and interaction. Mm-hmm. But it is just it's pure enjoyment. Every time if I'm flipping channels at home just to have white noise in the background <laughs> and I happen to stumble on that, I must stop what I am doing That's and your stop sit, everything go and, to movie. And sit and I've got a few like that and it's like, "Oh my god. I ha- oh, well let's just take a short break and watch a little bit of this <laughs> and the next thing you know I've watched the whole thing." You know. And <laughs> you, know, you can always, you know, you can always just uh, you know, feed a DVD into uh, one of the inputs on your television and have a constant loop of it, and then well, just be like, well, I feel like watching it. Then I'll never get anything done. If, <laughs> if, if I did that... That with... would be me with, like, Blade Runner, you know? <laughs> I would just be like, okay, I think have... I'll watch this for an hour and a half, Well, two hours. one film that everybody needs to watch is Altered Minds. Michael, oh, the... thank you so much. I am, I, when I, I've seen it now, I've watched it a couple times. Really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Wow, because okay. Because there is so, you have so much texture and nuance in the construct of this film from story to characters, and I talked to Jamie about this last week, and I mentioned it to Joe. It's like mm. the ambiguity that you create, especially within the character of Leonard, at, mm. who could be turning on a dime. I mean, real, it's like one a minute you think, okay, he he's the one who's responsible for untoward events that have gone on or are going on, and you mm-hmm. lead us down these little paths, but then it turns, it twists. Um, it's a fabulous noir, noir touch that just is, it's intriguing, intriguing. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's nice to hear them. We, you know, one of my, my first and foremost goals, I think, with the film was that I wanted to, I really wanted there to be this constant uh, questioning uh, from the part of the audience, mm-hmm. questioning uh, as to who was, who was who was bluffing? Uh, you know, who was telling the truth? And and uh, you know, at a certain point in this film, it's really the 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 main question is: Did the Judd Hirsch character, who's a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. uh, who adopted all of these children from war torn countries, did he adopt them because he loved them and wanted to nurture and heal them back to uh, back into the uh, world of the the uh, mentally healthy, or did he adopt them because he was just trying to um, Ex- accomplish experiments, his, his, his ends, uh, you know, the, the experimentation. So, you know, it's important for all of the, the you know, it was important, I think, for all of the, the family members uh, that, are, that are in the story to, to make you wonder and think at various times in the, in the film if they know more than they're letting on, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, I'm happy to say that, that you know, the people who've really enjoyed the film, I've had responses from people saying, I thought it was Leonard, I thought the mother knew something, I thought Julie was something, you know, and mm-hmm. then that was kind of the, the sort of sense of disorientation I wanted people to experience, that, that, you know, really until the end, you're kind of like thinking you know who it is or have an idea, but then it turns out every time that suspicion is, rises, you knock it down. And that's exactly what I experienced watching it. And that, to me, that's a testament to you as a storyteller. That's not just being a filmmaker. That's being a storyteller. When you can take us down, let take our minds, the minds of the audience, down those various paths. I mean, it's, it's like a book and turning the pages in a book and you don't know what the next page is gonna, it will behold. Well, you're, you're really making me feel very, very, uh, you're blowing my ego up right now. <laughs> Better slow down. <laughs> well, I mean, the fr- I appreciate that. I appreciate. Well, there was a, you know, there was just a lot of care and a lot of love went into this film, not just by myself, obviously. I just had a really tremendous team of creative people and collaborators. I was so fortunate enough to work with, um, you know, all the actors. Obviously, I mean, I think they did such a phenomenal job, and and really uh, were were the ones that that brought these characters to life mm-hmm. and made us believe that this is a, you know, a family going through this horrific crisis, but also just every, every little layer. Filmmaking is comprised of so many layers you know, mm-hmm. that, that you just don't see. There's the film, the finished film, uh, and you see what's in front of you, but you know, there's all the action going on behind those scenes, and, and after those scenes are shot, 
behind the scenes of the edit room and and all of the contributors you know everyone i think was on this you know we were all on sort of the same page this was mm-hmm. not like many an independent film and, and a passion project which yeah. i think we could call this for sure and anything where you've been working more than five years, it's a passion project. <laughs> it, film, film actually, 10-year run is, is kind of normal. But, you know, anyway, this was a passion project. I think everybody knew and everybody who, who worked on this, you know, they, they were drawn to some aspect of this mm-hmm. and some aspect of it uh, in the script and, uh, and really gave it their all. And, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to, you were saying, like, layers and textures. Like, I wanted people to be able to experience what it was like to be in a home that is, uh, you know, a house, a family with a family that's really falling apart and to, and to be really, you know, just looking, coming into the story thinking, I know this home, I know this family, and then midway through going, I don't really, maybe I don't know what I'm seeing mm-hmm. here. Maybe I don't, I'm not, they're not so familiar. And then really three-quarters of the way and going, God, everything I thought I knew, I, it, it's, it's sort of suspended at this point. I wanted people to feel that sort of sense of tension all the way through, and I think all the different departments, from the cinematography to the editing to the music, the mm-hmm. acting, everybody really came through. So, you know, it, I, I'm happy to and, and appreciate getting a, a wonderful compliment from you, but it's a compliment to everybody, right? Because I oh. think, you know, you, you, the director may be steering the ship, but the ship is being run by an incredible, you know, team behind it. Well, and as I said to Joe and I said to Jamie last week, one of the big keys with this film, once you have these performances down, in order to maintain the pacing, mm. that that raise that rapier edge, mm-hmm. it, it comes down to your editing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is this is a situation where editing is performance and editing go hand in hand with this film. Right, right, absolutely. Um, you know, Tom Swarthout, who I can never say enough amazing things about him. He's a friend, and, and he is... Uh, there's a reason why uh, Sidney Lumet had Tom edit his last four movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, he, uh, you know, he was, he was really good at keeping... We, we, we were always, always really, really focusing when we were putting the film together in the edit. Mm-hmm. I was always saying to Tom, you know, I, I want, I don't want, I want us to be ahead of the audience. And I said, I, I don't want the audience to be ahead of us, you know, because if, the minute they get ahead of us, even though that seems difficult in a movie like this, yeah. the minute they get ahead of us, then it, it, it then the, the question pops up, why, why should we even watch at this point? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we, we kind of, we kind of figured this out. So that was important, but equally important was, was the sense of dread, mm-hmm. and the sense of um, the sense of uh, you know the sort of ominous sense of something being wrong here, mm-hmm. had to gradually build from beginning, and then sort of spiral out of control, and had to be reflected in the you know in the editing and and, and in the pacing, and that and he really he really just he got that he got the the cadence really mm-hmm. really well. And, and uh, like a great editor, too, he was very good at holding my hand during some of the more difficult times, uh, you know, where it was time to lose a scene or <laughs> cut some dialogue or get rid of, you know, get rid of something he knew that was sacred to me in one way or another. Um, but we, we just had, we had a really good open communication and, and I think understood, understood kind of like the, the, uh, the pitch mm-hmm. of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and another big part of this, and, and you touched on it when you said that, you know, you see the house, you think you know the kind of people, you think you know the family in the house. Mm-hmm. And in the case of this particular house, mm-hmm. so many people recognize this house because of the fact it was once owned by Julius Irving. Right. <laughs> so already, peop- a lot of anybody in the Philadelphia area, the 26ers fan. I wonder. Is gonna- <laughs> I do wonder that. Well, when you I know- saw the house, I knew. I said, I've seen that before. I- uh, really? Are you from Philadelphia? I am born. Oh, in you're Bray. kidding? Okay. Are you in Philadelphia right now? No, I'm actually right now. The Bray- I'm out in L.A. Um, 
Okay. Which is where I am. No, I'm born and bred. My dad worked at Channel 6 for 60 years. My brother works at 17. I'm... Oh, okay. Okay. Well, good. Well, we have a real Philadelphian. I love Philadelphia, by the way. That's well, just a complete aside. It's such a great city. Well, I mean, you picked it to film this, even though you needed <laughs> snow, and you pick it on one of the warmest winters that they had had. <laughs> right. Now, see, right. If, if you'd waited to this uh, year... You'd... Yeah, well, that, that was definitely a time where Mother Nature wasn't cooperating with the film, as she often doesn't. Now, what does that do when Mother Nature does not cooperate? What does that do to your budget, to your timetable, when you now have to go and manufacture snow? Well, I think in the case of this film, since a good portion of the movie takes place inside the house, you know, much of the sound design was meant to create a presence of winter, mm-hmm. um, you know, through the sound, even though we weren't necessarily outside that often, but we'd always hear, you know, you'd always hear, hear the, 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 uh, the wind howling, hear the noise of what was going on outside, the ice crackling. Um, so when, when we were going into this film, there were no illusions that, you know, okay, we, we'll be able to uh, we'll be able to guarantee that there's going to be snow outside. So when you shoot against the window, you'll see the the snowy backyard. Uh, you know, everything will be taken care of. I kind of went in uh, with my DP and said, "Look, we have to prepare that there'll be no snow." You know, <laughs> even, it's the end of December. Uh, these days on the East Coast, the Northeast, you know, December is kind of like now become the end of fall. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like we didn't get the first snow until this week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're well into the end of January. So my, our, our, I, what's that? Oh, no, I didn't say anything. Oh, sorry. Um, so basically, you know, in terms of, in terms of the weather affecting our plans, it really didn't. We, we decided aesthetically when we were shooting inside and we'd see a window, we were just going to blow it out, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that way we would create the sense of a whiteout outside. And I think that that actually, I hope it works. You know, you, you, you just don't question it. You know, you know it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's kind of like freezing and there's lots of, of uh, craziness going on winter-wise outside. Mm-hmm. And you just, you, you represent that with the noise, the sound of it, and mm-hmm. that white window, which you see a few times in the film. Yeah. Uh, the, the rest of the movie was anytime you saw snow or icicles outside, for the most part, those were all computer-generated graphics mm-hmm. done by animators. And they did it for, for a low-budget movie. We did not budget CG. Um, <laughs> we didn't budget it. Uh, we kind of figured we would be able to make enough, uh, you know, get enough real snow in, in a small area and just make it work. And the truth is those scenes that take place outside mm-hmm. were just, you know, there, was, there were wide shots in there, and there, there, there was no way to be able to uh, realistically portray this winter by having those wide shots when we shot them, which we shot those in, in uh, eight, uh, March, end of March. It was then going into spring. There was no way that people were going to see those and go, oh, that's a really cold winter. They would have seen too much... Too many colors and, yeah. and it, not enough, uh, not enough snow. So we ended up having a lot of shots, and I just kind of took the attitude like, okay, we'll find it. We'll find some animators to draw it in and do some rotoscoping, and that was they did a great job. But that landed up um, kicking our budget a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> kicking the butt a little bit. But there was, you know, there was nothing. There was nothing we could really do about it, and we landed up creating some snow. Um, which was real from ice skating rink shavings. Mm-hmm. We found a couple of local ice skating rinks to donate their shavings as long as we picked them up. Oh. Yes. So, <laughs> well, what are they going to do with them? That's true. <laughs> and, I mean, you are shooting in the city of brotherly love, so. Right. Exactly. They got plenty, right? I don't think the, uh, I don't think the hockey teams are upset. No. No. Um, and, then, and then some stuff was made by our production design team, uh, some of the icicles you saw, like the one that Tommy holds in the film, mm-hmm. was actually made of a silicon mold. Sure. And um, but you know, in terms of uh, budget, you know, other than the stuff that we had to paint in, you know, we we kind of knew. Look, this is this. We don't have the money to create like a a, a, a Doctor Zhivago Winter Wonderland yeah. uh, landscape. So we're going to have to suggest it more than show it. Yeah. Well, you know, as much as I hate to do this. I have to cut us short. We have another director that that is that is coming on today, but I have already been emailing with Tim today. Oh, okay. 
And I want oh, my, my Tim, the Tim that I'm working with. Yes, you're Tim. Oh, he's such a great guy. Tim is fabulous, and I'm going to hook up with him when I get off the air today, and so that you and I can schedule a time to actually do a full in-depth, you know, interview off the air. Oh, good. For, for an interview, oh, I would love that. I would love that as as long as you have the time. <laughs> I will definitely. Hey, for this, I, Michael, I definitely, definitely will. Great, so, great. I look forward to doing that. Oh, and thank you so much for calling. I hope that you'll that you'll join me on the show again. At anytime. Oh, anytime. terrific! And I will talk to you as soon as I talk to Tim today. Great. You have a great one. It was so nice speaking with oh, you. Oh, thanks, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. And that was Michael Wexler, writer-director of Altered Minds. And, yes, you'll hear more from him in the future. And right now we have Nathan Williams, first-time feature director. If There's a Hell Below, premiere yesterday at Slamdance. How did it go? It went great. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for having me on. Oh, Nathan, a- this, this is so exciting today because I've got, you know, you on, Michael on, and both of you have these incredible psychological thrillers that are the pacing and the performance is so key yeah i was listening to the end of his reviews or interview i'm i'm interested to check his film out oh i you blew me away with your film because thank you the way you have it constructed how did you because i know you also did your own editing did you not i did i did so you wrote directed and edited how did Too many you... hats, probably, but that's no. <laughs> that I th- was our budget level. I think all the hats work to your advantage with this film, because the dialogue is minimal. This is about ambient sound, which this your mm-hmm. sound design is fabulous, but it's also all about your pacing, building tension, as Michael had said about his film, that fear of dread as to what's unfolding, and also the ambiguity of you don't really know what's going on right yeah it's um it's in a a way i like to say it's a detective film where the audience is the detective you Mm -hmm. have to really you know none of the characters you have specific reason to trust and they're trying to figure out if they can trust each other and you're trying to figure out if you can trust them and everyone is who they say they are so (laughs) um yeah it's uh it's it's been a fun process to get to this point, and I'm glad. <laughs> it's, it's very nice to finally have the world see it, you know, because a, a movie like this where it's based on mood and tension, you know, I, I know it's not tense for me because I know what's going to happen. <laughs> I know which shot follows each one. So it's, you know, you kind of take this leap of faith that I believe this is going to work, and then people start to finally see it, and it's, it's pretty exciting. Now, when you were writing the script for If There's a Hell Below, um, were you visualizing, were you already in, envisioning how you were going to shoot this, the imagery you wanted to have on screen? Yeah. I mean, you know, because I'm writing for myself as a director, um, I was writing with a pretty specific visual style in mind. Um, it's, you know, I, I knew I was going to work with the cinematographer I ended up working with. He's a longtime collaborator of mine. So I, I didn't, initially wrote it actually as, uh, kind of a prose short story mm-hmm. um, where I went into much greater detail about the images than than you would in a in a traditional screenplay. Certainly, mm-hmm. a screenplay you were writing for somebody else, um, and then using that that kind of short story format that that described the visuals more specifically to to attract people to the product project. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think the screenplay, because dialogue is so minimal at times, it would feel like. Well, what's going on here? It's, it's very, it's very dry. It's very vague. Um, I was able to flesh that out more. Well, something and something that you and and Chris Messina did so beautifully. A lot. You have some very unique camera angles. You show mm-hmm. us bits and pieces. You know, very Hitchcockian in some respects. Uh, that yeah. we we will see just the feet at the bottom of you know at the bottom of the car, or right. just the back of a head face down in the dirt, not a whole body, but just a, a piece or right. Deborah's her driving gloves. I mean, which was an interesting touch that you did. I have to say to have those white and cream driving gloves and her also <clears throat> wearing the white and cream cowboy boots. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, my, my actress was like, am I going to look ridiculous? Like, no, 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 you're going to look, you're going to look interesting and people are going to want to know more about you. Um, 
which, I, you know, I hope that's how you feel. Well, it's like, who, uh, I kept thinking, who the heck buys white cowboy boots? Obviously, this is not, this was done in the summer and couldn't have been after Labor Day. So, because right. <laughs> you can't wear white after yeah. Labor Day. No, uh, well before Labor Day, you should be aware. But, um, yeah, I mean, Hitchcock is, a, is a, a huge influence. And when you're constructing a film like this um, about, you know, being watched and being followed and, and anticipation, I mean, there's, there's no better resource to go to than than to look at his films. Um, so if, if we get called Hitchcockian, it's, it's a, you know, we take that as a huge compliment. Yeah, I mean, you've, you have some moments in there that really, and just following, you know, f- you know, following just the legs or following just the arms. And yeah. you're, you, it, it's that unseen factor that Hitchcock always celebrated to let the audience's mind, because the mind is so powerful, it can take you in so many directions. And that just helps fuel a story like yours. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing you you always want with a film like this is you want to keep the audience wanting to know more. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't want to frustrate them. Um, So it's a a fine line to walk of kind of feeding them bits and pieces along the way where they're they're, they're getting it and they say, well, what's what's outside the frame? What's on the other side of this hill? Um, And so kind of, Speeding that out at the right kind of pace is mm-hmm. the challenge. So now, how would you describe the what the plot of this film to, for somebody that hasn't seen it, isn't on the festival circuit to see it, just mm-hmm. hearing about it for the first time? Yeah, so it's about a young, ambitious journalist who is contacted by a woman claiming to be a, a national security leaker. Um, sort of an Edward Snowden type person, and she wants to meet him out in the middle of nowhere where they can't be observed or recorded, and then she wants to break this story. So he he meets her, and um, they, you know, they're trying to figure out if they if she can trust him as a journalist, if she can if he can trust that she is who she says she is, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, she has this level of paranoia, which he initially thinks is is paranoia, and may or may not be based on on some real dangers that mm-hmm. they find themselves in. Well, and that's one of the interesting things is the paranoia factor. And yeah. I, I've got to commend Connor Marks, Connor who plays the, the male journalist Abe, because mm-hmm. Connor really plays that of, you know, and even has you as an audience member believing that, you know, okay, maybe she really is just crazy. Right. And very dismissive and very questioning until things finally start to come together so that we start seeing the puzzle pieces. But Connor's, Connor's performance is very, it's, it's very interesting, especially when, when put up against Carol Roscoe. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, they're very, they're very much a contrast. And he's the, you know, in the, in the, Kind of the traditional thriller structure. He's he's the the naive one who keeps getting them into trouble. And the challenge with a character like that in writing it and performing it is making that person feel real. You know, in mm-hmm. the in the schlocky horror movie, it's the person who goes in the basement when there's no reason you'd ever go in the basement. Right. And everyone in the audience is like, "Why are you going in the basement, you dummy?" And so finding a plausible in this kind of in this style of film, mm-hmm. uh, finding a, you know a, a a real psychologically plausible reason for this person to keep getting them into greater and greater danger. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, Connor, Connor is great. I think it's, it's, it's not like one of these showy performances, but it's actually a very difficult character to do, and, and I think he really nailed it. Yeah, very much so, because of the beats of Abe and the twists and turns that you have in here as little snippets unfold. Yeah. You know, you need somebody who can play to, to the best advantage of each of those They've got to be able to turn on a dime with nuance, and Connor, right. Connor does a beautiful job with that. Yeah, and he's really the perspective of the audience as much as anyone is. That he he's seeing kind of these things and no, not sure what the dangers are. And a lot of a lot of his performance is him just kind of looking and thinking. Mm-hmm. And those are those are harder to do than you know big big great lines to deliver mm-hmm. for an actor. Um, so yeah, it's it was. He's someone I've worked with before in my shorts, and um, it was it was great having him in that role. And you also something that I, I truly appreciate here is you actually this runs as in real time. 
Yeah, for the most part. There's a couple kind of ellipses. Um, but it was it was written to to run entirely in real time and, and hopefully feels that way. Mm-hmm. That this whole kind of story is really just a couple hours and plays out, you know, with that kind of relentless this is happening right now sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a great relentless intensity to it. Yeah, there was a point very early in the process when I had the insane idea to, to do the entire film as a single take. Um, <laughs> and my, my, which, you know, would be literally real time. Um, <laughs> and, but uh, a couple of producer friends of mine convinced me that that, that, that would I would die in the process of trying to <laughs> trying to achieve that at our budget level. So. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, you would be experiencing hell hell below in real yeah. life if you tried that. Yeah, the film never would have been finished. We mm. wouldn't be having this conversation. No, so. no, <laughs> I, I it, was, it was for the best. That's why it's good to good to see counsel of of people who <laughs> give you give you real advice. So, what was the learning curve like for you jumping? Because I know you've done quite a few shorts, but mm-hmm. jump jumping into not only a feature, but a feature of this nature? Um, you know, having done as many shorts as I had, it wasn't, it wasn't that daunting, um, especially when we felt really good about the foundation. I and mean, we felt good about the script. We felt great about the cast. We felt great about the crew. Um, and, you know, just believing that, you know, as, as long as we're executing kind of every day. And we really... Everything was really, really planned at this budget level. You can't just, I mean, I can't just wing it. So mm-hmm. we had really tight shot lists, and we knew how everything was going to fit together. Um, and, no, it wasn't, it wasn't that, it didn't feel like that huge a leap, as, apart from just the time. You know, I mean, the entire movie from conception to today is, you know, probably about two years, which is much longer than you spend on a short. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I've been living in this world of hell below for, for so long. So, you know, now, now that if there's a hell below, so is there a hell above now that we're going to see? Um, well, they won't, in terms of another film or like an explicit <laughs> either chapter one, two. Either one. I would love yeah, to see it. Well, I'd love to see a chapter two with this one. Well, uh, I, some people have said that and I don't want to, you know, there, there is, potential for at least some of the characters there to, is potential yes story. we're not giving away spoilers um, yeah uh i guess that implies that not everyone in the movie dies but um yeah it's not it's not my next it's not my next step um if if there was genuine interest and and the, the requisite actors were interested in revisiting those roles it's something you know if we found the right story um mm-hmm. it would be fun um, it certainly would be fun to work in this in this kind of mood in this genre again mm-hmm. um, on a bigger scale, you know, where we could have more than <laughs> more than two or three cars and things like that. So, and I know before we totally run out of time here, I want to make sure mm-hmm. everybody knows that if you're up at Slam Dance, you can still see if there's a hell below on what Wednesday. Wednesday at one p.m. at the Treasure Mountain Inn. And the top of the hill. where do you go after Come Slam? Where do you go after Slam Dance? Uh, I go back home to Portland, Oregon, and we'll see which other festivals feel like they wanna they wanna show our movie. Well, uh, they'd be they would be quite remiss and stupid not to. Yeah, well, so. <laughs> from your mouth to their ears. <laughs> oh, Nathan, thank you so so much. I'm actually gonna hook up with Karen afterwards because I want to do an in depth one on one with you. Um, I'd love to. That sounds great. You know, outside of the show, so I'll hook up with yeah. her and we get something scheduled. But awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. Debbie. Nathan, thank you so much. And I will talk to you again soon. Talk to you soon. Have Bye-bye. a good one. And that was Nathan Williams, writer, director, editor of If There's a Hell Below, If You Were at Slam Dance, Wednesday, take yourself to the theater and catch this because it is it's a it's a really worth your time. And then go home and get on VOD and watch Altered Minds from Michael Wexler. So that's all the time we have today. Next week, uh, I don't know what we're going to be doing next week. I haven't planned it out yet. So we'll find out next Monday. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias for Behind the Lens. (laughs) 